Attention listeners, ahead are spoilers. Hello, and welcome to the Movie Trap. My name is Russell Carlson, and with me as always is Chris Boroff. Take no prisoners. <laughs> and also joining us uh, in his uh, eye in the sky, Zach Powers. <laughs> uh, dear listeners, uh, Zach, in keeping with the theme of the movie, wrote the word hello on a card and then showed it to us. That's right. That's the safe way to go about this thing if you've seen today's movie, mm-hmm. because we are in mm-hmm. the middle of our uh, uh, of Pontypool today. It's a revisit for us. Uh, all three of us were there at the film concussion about 10, 20 years ago or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. So it's fun for us to get back into it. But before we get into it, let me explain to you the show that you are listening slash watching to. On the movie trap, one of the three hosts you just met devises or picks a theme and then the rest of us picks movies based off that theme after we've watched all three movies then we then vote with an allocated amount of points plus some bonus points we earned along the way and whichever host's movie wins the vote that host gets to pick the next theme and we are in the middle of zach power's theme of movie adaptations that you the host have actually read um, of other material. It doesn't have to be a book. It could be a play or whatever. Um, but uh, so we started off with uh, Zach's pick of the Shawshank Redemption. And now here we are. Lo and behold, yay, do I walk through the valley of the shadow of death into 2008's Pontypool. Um, it's, I know it's a Borf favorite. It's his staple. It's his secret handshake. Mm-hmm. If you ever want to be buddies with this guy, just say the words Pontypool and you will have a friend for life. Um, so before we get into the, the nitty-gritty of what happens in Pontypool, let's get a rundown of the points. Uh, so, Chris Bora, you, as I said, we each get uh, 10 points for final voting and then three bonus points for along the way, but we gave out some bonus points last episode, so let's r- remind ourselves and the listeners at home. So, uh, Z- uh, Chris, you have one bonus point to give out with 12 points for final voting. I have two bonus points to give out for 11 points for final voting. And Zach Powers, you have two bonus points to give out for 11 points for final voting. Uh, so, that brings us to the fun and madness of a Canadian suburb of Toronto. Zach Powers, if you have written down the summary uh, of Pontypool and you expect to do this with cards, I will be impressed. <laughs> I was actually going to pretend that I was going to write down the entire thing. I had a prop and everything. But you, you cut me, you beat me to the chase. Um, unfortunately, this is not a strictly visual medium. I guess it would have been easy enough to print it out and hold it up to my camera. Um, yeah, just uh, just uh, Bob Dylan style, just one yeah. card after there another go, for like right, thirty yeah. minutes. Yep, just do yep, a yeah. screen share of the Wikipedia article here. <laughs> um, all right, Pontypool is a two thousand eight Canadian horror movie directed by Bruce McDonald. It was written uh, by Tony Burgess, which, who also wrote the novel Pontypool Changes Everything that it was based upon. It stars Stephen McHattie, Lisa Hewell, and Georgina Riley, uh, among a few others. It basically tells the story of a shock jock who has recently been relocated to a kind of podunk outpost radio station 
in Pontypool, Ontario for a more straight-laced job than his previous gig in a bigger city. He uh, is accosted on a snowy day to the morning radio uh, program one day by a woman who appears out of the snow, mutters something he can't hear before disappearing again. Grant has a tendency to sort of write these weird philosophical, like, uh, you know, pieces about uh, things that happen to him or uh, missing cats and the like. And he has a little monologue about the woman he saw this morning and when to call 911, checking in with his station manager, uh, Sydney, and the technical assistant, Laurel Ann, as well as uh, the uh, unseen man in the sky, Ken Loney, who gives them the traffic and weather uh, report. There's a breaking news story about a local clinic of a Dr. Mendez that has been uh, attacked in some weird riot and has apparently resulted in numerous deaths. Ken is cut off from giving the rest of that report, that eyewitness report. Other witnesses who try to confirm it are also mysteriously pulled from the airwaves before eventually the BBC begins to contact the trio there, trying to get details about this breaking story. Ken has taken refuge in a grain silo and says that people are starting to eat one another. Ken's call is again interrupted when he uh, is seemingly attacked and a transmission in French comes through the airwaves instead, which is translated to say things like remain indoors, do not use English, do not use certain kinds of terms, and do not translate this message. Uh, Pontypool is under quarantine, and Ken calls back uh, one last time, getting some audio of his attacker who is speaking in a sort of bizarre voice, saying, help me. Meanwhile, uh, some people attack outside the radio station, and Laurel Ann becomes fixated on the word missing and imitating certain sounds that she is hearing around the station. Dr. Mendez uh, enters the station suddenly through a window and hides with Grant and Sydney in uh, the soundproof booth. And Ken uh, calls actually one more time and actually succumbs to the virus on air. Meanwhile, Laurel Ann, Dr. Mendez uh, says she's also succumbing to the virus. She begins to slam her head against the soundproof booth. Dr. Mendez believes that the virus is spread through language and that certain words are infected and people who hear them begin to become obsessed with them and repeat them, eventually turn into these sort of zombie-like creatures that uh, go out in search of someone to kill. Meanwhile, things are getting more desperate in the booth. Uh, Sydney's kids seem to be infected at one point uh, over a phone call. I did skip over, I think at this point, the uh, Lawrence of Arabia kids who come in um, <laughs> yeah. to uh, perform <laughs> in the middle of like this the emerging details of this horrible tragedy. One of the kids seems to be acting bizarrely in that scene too. Eventually, Laurel Ann dies. Mendez thinks it's because she failed to find a victim. And eventually the horde breaks into the radio station just as Mendez is starting to repeat certain words quietly under his breath himself. They draw the mob back outside by using the exterior speakers to repeat the words, Sidney Breyer is alive. Dr. Mendez attempts to stop his infection by speaking exclusively in Armenian. Um, but, uh, Gradually, it seems to start continuing to overtake him anyway. Sydney and Grant separate themselves from Mendez and lock themselves in the equipment room, communicating without uh, using language. They begin writing. Sydney starts to become infected with the word kill, 
And Grant begins to suspect that it's both understanding and saying the word that causes the infection uh, and says that kill now means kiss. Kill means kiss. And they repeat this a number of times to make the word seem meaningless to her. And uh, her symptoms subside. They also kiss. They go on the air and start saying like similar things to kill means kiss, like words mean other words in a completely nonsensical and confusing way, ignoring warnings from certain people who are trying to get them to uh, get off the air. There is a countdown from 10 from some authority ex outside. I believe this is, I believe they kiss again, just as uh, an explosion is heard and the film cuts to black. It is suggested uh, in news reports that the quarantine failed and it has reached other parts of the world. There's also a bizarre post credit sequence where they're kind of in this weird stylized world and they've become cool, uh, I don't know, Vagabond, I don't know how to describe it. It's a very bizarre post-grad yeah. sequence. Yeah, it's like, are they dead? Are they not dead? Is this the afterlife? Who knows? It is a weird code I mean, to kind of end on. Yeah, we can, we can get into it. But yeah, I think that it's definitely um, one of those things where the movie kind of, in a way, seems like it becomes infected with a virus itself. So that the film starts off as like a normal film. And then as it gets closer to the end of the movie, stranger and stranger things start happening. Uh, I have a feeling that it was probably intended as like a surrealist horror thing, but uh, it does play real strange. Uh, they also hmm. made a, a cast sequel years later um, called Dreamland that I just I just saw recently. Uh, hmm. Very different than Pontypool, not the same vibe, but same actors. And it almost seemed to me like there were a couple shots in the movie that seemed like they wanted to tie it to Pontypool visually to that last weird wacky credit sequence uh very different movie though not not connected in any other fashion really okay but it's like is he actually playing grant mazzy is it or is it just stephen mccaddy no just being no a it's character? just S stephen mccaddy plays two characters in that movie um okay but it has stylistically it looks like the character from this movie and the end credit sequence like grant mazzy okay well, because the thing is, is like Grant Mazzy and uh, Sidney Breyer, when they show them again in that post-credit sequence, they almost don't look like the same characters to me. Like, I think they're still mm. using the same names, but they don't act the same way. Um, and it just had a vibe to hmm. me that seemed like what they were trying to go for with Dreamland. Anyway. Okay. Uh, All right. Well, but, I guess it, it is kind of like a dreamy sort of like ending so i mean i guess you know yeah. dreamland i don't know i've never seen it but like that makes sense um yeah it's it's weird that like it almost felt like you could have kept going with this movie and but i almost am like why would you want to because yeah you're kind of you've run out of rope so to speak um you know like they they really did kind of put grant and the whole world in a corner uh and there was only one way out of it and it either implies that everybody gets bombed and dies or everyone just turns into the word zombies or whatever um yeah which is fine well, i don't mind and, and, uh, and there was an all there's an alternate ending and like the, the radio play and i can't remember if it was the original ending of the, the movie or not but in that version sydney is infected his attempt to save her does not work she dies and then at the very end grant becomes infected starting to repeat uh what is it he repeats paper. paper over and over again until the last word of the movie is him saying trap <laughs> but it is implied that he becomes infected as well okay and he's broadcasting on the radio so it's great a clever aspect of it obviously is like it's almost a uh 
a, a movie that's a bottle episode because it's a zombie mm-hmm. apocalypse, but they don't show. Um, it's all related through dialogue mm-hmm. uh, yeah. for the most part, except for a few scenes where, like near the end, a few of the creatures get in, and like the scene with Laurel Ann. It's pretty low key, and the most horrific and or high budget explosive scenes are all told to us through other characters stylistically you know you could tell this was very much derivative of orson welles's war of the worlds kind of thing um where it's kind of like a radio play but meant to feel like it's real you know to kind of really jam up the thrilling aspects of it so that's in that respect it it also kind of reminded me of like whenever you're doing a movie about a radio because i i brought this up at the film concussion days with uh talk radio the the eric mm-hmm. bogosian movie with directed by oliver stone our favorite um but it's kind of <laughs> similar to that but it, in a way i like this i like this movie a lot better um not just because you know it's oliver stone and it draws a lot of attention to itself but uh, it is also the idea because the whole point of talk radio is in you know he's intruding on other people and this one they're starting to intrude on him but with the aspect of this word virus or whatever, he's the one who's actually doing the intruding. So it's kind of a neat little, I, I, I really thought it was a, a fun device. If you're going to have something weird in Dr. Who, like, uh, like a word virus, uh, to do it in this manner without, you know, don't get into the deep head cannon of it. It doesn't need it. You know, it, it kind of yeah. keeps everything at a length that, um, creates mystery and dread. And I think that this movie, I think it's a, it's a good idea to do it with that kind of, uh, you know, plot device, like a word virus or whatever. I, I feel like this movie kind of tells you just enough to just kind of get it going and then you can just kind of enjoy it. It's the one, one of the things, like you mentioned bottle episodes. I always think about bottle episodes a lot, like Doctor Who's best episodes or bottle mm-hmm. episodes. Sort of. A lot of them are standalone. Like if you're thinking about a Blink, that's not really a bottle episode. No, it's no, a standalone I alone episode. That's correct. I was meaning more like uh, there's one episode in which he's on a train car. Uh, oh yes. yeah, yeah, that's yeah, during yeah, the Capaldi yeah, yeah. era. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah Capaldi's got no, another no, really good bald. It was uh, it was before episode. him. It was uh, it was Tenant. It was a Tenant episode. I just was it a, I just was remember. It, are you thinking of the cruise ship, the Christmas episode? Why are we talking no, about Doctor no. Who? Uh, but, <laughs> no, okay. no, no. It's it's. I believe that uh, the. Uh, just to briefly say it, the doctor whose assistant goes on some sort of a little tour somewhere else. Oh, and right. Midnight. That's right. Go. She goes on. Midnight. That's right. That's right. Yep. Yeah. Yep, yep, so yep. there's like, oh, a, yeah. there's essentially a monster that's like possessing people and causing them to do bad things. Mm-hmm. Uh, but nobody on the train knows Doctor Who, cares about Doctor Who. So it's a very fun, like just uh, a knuckle biter. That very I quick would call episode. a bottle episode for sure. The neat thing with this is that I think it's a really smart production. Um, mm. like it's very economical for what they needed to do and how they went about it. Um, specifically, because I, I also I should mention this to the listeners that we have an interview. Um, I randomly hit. Yeah, up, I'm sorry. I should have uh, mentioned that the header. Stay yeah. tuned at the end of this episode. We do have an interview with the one and only Tony Burgess, who wrote the screenplay and the novel that this is based on. So stick around. Yeah. Um, yeah, he, I randomly hit him up on Twitter and he decided, sure, let's go ahead and answer some questions. I actually hit him up about a scene that caused us to fight back in the day. Um, but we'll get it to that in a second. <laughs> However, should have said at the beginning, there is an episode of our old show, The Film Concussion, where we yeah. covered this movie as this well. This movie with Lords yeah. of Arabia, I believe. We did mm-hmm. it back to back. Yeah, I think that was Boris's little joke yeah. of including Pontypool yeah. because it mentions Lords of Arabia. 
Um, yeah, yeah the, the gag the gag back in the day i always wondered why they got crossed over and eventually i did find out and it's in the interview about why lawrence of arabia appears in this um but to answer the one question the thing i was saying real quick they were also doing the radio podcast at the same time it was a radio broadcast not a podcast at the time um so they were producing that because they couldn't get money to do the big budget version of this film so they wound up making that and then decided well if we're here and we're already in a recording studio this is kind of like a version of the movie so then they just wrote the script and then just essentially did a live film at the same time they were doing the radio broadcast which could be why the ending on the radio broadcast was so much different anyway so if i had points to get out i would give a point i didn't (laughs) i i have have one point the reason i would give out a point is this uh or points i should say uh this movie was not originally involving uh, Lawrence of Arabia. It was very much an arbitrary thing that got added into the film because they couldn't afford the original thing, which was The King and I. Oh. Okay. You guys, I think, have already seen or heard the interview. Uh, briefly for the listeners, you can go uh, listen to that interview. But long and short of it is that originally, Tony Burgess, the writer, was in a situation that is essentially the Lawrence of Arabia singing in a radio uh, booth situation that happens in the movie. Basically, uh, he wound up having to go in. They had to put on the full regalia to do this small presentation in a radio show, uh, even though they weren't uh, on camera. Uh, So for some reason, the director decided that it would make them sound better if they were in character <laughs> See, by wearing you, you costumes. You've got to be in the moment, you know? It's, yeah. It's, it's Chekhov's Rose, uh, you see. <laughs> but yeah, um... So, uh, yeah, we had that interview, and I was very excited. I would give you guys points, but unfortunately, I have one point, and I cannot choose between my children. So uh, uh, You'll have to save it for later. <laughs> well, briefly, since this is the theme of this round of episodes, um, Chris, you have apparently also read the book that this is I based have. on. Um, do you have any insight into... Uh, any adaptive choices between the book as opposed to the radio play uh, yeah. and this film? Yeah. The, well, uh, the book was written first, right? Like he wrote yeah. the novel and then they decided yeah. to do the radio. Okay. I believe the book was from 98. I have it in the other room. Okay. Um, I should have grabbed it and brought it in here. But uh, yeah. So it's origi- 1995 here. There you go. So the book is very unique from the movie and it is unique from the radio play. Um the movie and the radio play both have a narrative focus where they're starting at the beginning of the tracks and you go through the whole experience with one character and you're seeing how the world is twisting apart around him. The book is written way more as first person perspectives of different people interacting with this chaos happening throughout the town. So rather than just being with Grant Mazzy, you meet him one time in the book. Um, Interesting. And you don't meet any of the other people that show up in the story, uh, other than uh, Mendez. Dr. Mendez shows up a few times. He is just like he is in the movie. Also, crazy, strange character. Like in the book, they get a little bit more into just like how wild he is. But the book doesn't really have a narrative. It's just things start happening in this town, and then you follow characters briefly, and a couple characters survive long enough to be kind of, quote-unquote, the main character even though it's not really a narrative story in the same way. Um, but the book gets affected by the virus while you're reading it. 
which is kind of interesting. <laughs> so like you start off the book and you're reading it through and you're going along and suddenly at one point in the book, the words being used to describe reality stop effectively describing reality. Like they have someone who's got the word virus and they're obviously very upset and concerned and you, you, they're, you get the emotions of the characters through the story. But they start describing stuff that can't possibly be real. Um, like at one point, Grant Mazzy has like a higher power appearing behind him. The, there's a, an intern that starts at the radio station, much like in the movie, um, who becomes infected and is terminal. So they're actively having to fight down the need to just repeat a word while they're going through their first day of training at the job. And they start seeing like their higher power is what they keep referring to it as, which is whatever this person's religious view is. And he starts seeing halos around people and strange stuff like that. And the book by the end is just completely incomprehensible. Like it just stops being a story at some point. And you start just seeing like weird descriptions of things happening to bodies. And at one point there's twins that appear in the story who are children, who are abruptly adults who then have a baby. And then there's this whole weird body horror slapstick thing that happens where the baby is like running out of someone and it's like bungee cording on like a umbilical cord. It's very strange. I don't know if all that hmm. would be good in a movie, <laughs> but hmm. the basic concept I think is pretty fun. And I think about it a lot, which is one of the reasons it's my favorite and why I keep coming back to it and keep rereading the book and keep watching the movie again and all that stuff. Well, that's interesting because, like, you know, I never thought about it until you mentioned it uh, just a little bit ago that, in a sense, the movie itself becomes infected with the virus. And you just assume it's Grant Mazzy, but in a way that kind of tracks, right? Like, and that's that's probably, if you were trying to convey that as the way the book does, that's probably about as what you can do uh, without it being just, as you say, a, a confusing, macabre art film basically yeah you know, like and and that's yeah. well done well done yeah. never, I know, i'm gonna give you a point for that because i never considered that, that <laughs> the movie itself becomes infected i'm, I'm gonna yeah. give you a point for that well, chris it, it pops up like when they have to kill the kid uh because there's a they call them conversationalists on imdb for some reason but the zombie kid uh they don't actually that's what shoot the director the... says that refers to them as yeah apparently oh okay yeah well yeah, basically what happens is is that uh, there's a weird elliptical edit that happens in the middle of the movie where they have to kill the kid, and they don't actually show any of the gore. It's mostly like all off screen where you just see people stomping, but it it hard cuts to the shot without anybody standing in it, in, but you can still hear all the sound. And then it abruptly cuts back, and they are back on screen kicking the kid. It's a very strange sequence. What I like about this film and why the the ending's a little bit confusing to me is that it, it is mostly kind of straightforward and even in its sort of strangeness there's still like two feet on the ground so like I it, that's where it, with the at least it's at the end and you're like whatever you know like I, it's fine with yeah. being ambiguous you could figure it out that's fine either choice of ending in your own head is probably uh, applicable um, so that's why I didn't mind it but it is interesting that when it does choose to get kind of arty um because they do it at the beginning too there's like these 
offshoot these cutaways of in black and white similar to, to them at the end of these people just kind of staring and, and kind of just standing there staring at stuff i can't remember it's really early in the sequence where you're not really it, the 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 full it's, breath of the crisis the, really is that the obituary sequence? you're you're you might be talking about the obituary, yeah, the obituary. Sequence, yeah right which is a little bit fantastical even there because like i don't know in what conceivable way like he could know the amount of information he knows about these people and how they died and the order they died um, but it's nonetheless like a very interesting little monologue. I think this has a couple of like interestingly written, you know, I think the movie survives obviously on the strength of its writing because so much of that is doing the leg work of building the suspense and it often does it well. Like the Ken Loney calls are often like really eerie and unsettling. Um, and I think like even the beginning there's like a monologue, almost kind of like that monologue that opens Magnolia in a way about ah. like the weird coincidences uh, mm -hmm. of, you know, it, in it, this it, case specifically of language. But yeah. One final thing I'll say on the adaptation, um, at least from the book, there is one part in the book that I honestly love that never got it. It never turned into something in the movie like they weren't able to adapt it. Um, there's a character that you're introduced to very early on called Ellen, who has had uh, a stroke. So she has complete word aphasia. She doesn't understand what people are saying to her, and she can't understand words in general. But she understands the emotions of characters. So there's this kind of interesting sequence where her husband becomes infected, and he comes home, and he keeps saying gibberish to her, but she can't hear the gibberish. And it's written from her perspective. So for her, her husband's come home. She's sitting down. She's very happy to be next to her husband because she feels familiar and calm around him. And then it kind of visits a few more times with them during the course of the day as he starts losing his mind and becomes more violent and crazy and starts attacking things. She winds up out in a big pool of water uh, surrounded by these word zombies that are all attacking things that are making noise. However, uh, you know that the book is messing with you at that point because some of the zombies start turning around and saying things to her that uh, they can't possibly really be saying and she can't possibly be understanding. But it, it almost comes across like the dialogue does as though you've run into a schizophrenic on a subway train who is just screaming obscenities at you. It's very strange. It's a very strange sequence because it's like, they're asking like, oh, can we can we crush the motherfuckers? Can we chop the motherfuckers? And she's kind of responding like, I don't know, maybe. But it's obviously mm. not a conversation that's really happening. It's something very strange going on. Yeah, and I can't really see a an avenue to fit that into this movie when you've mm -hmm. got it so locked down like it does because part of, in my opinion, the strength of this movie is its very narrow scope. Um, mm -hmm. that's its superpower um, and that's why it keeps that shroud of, of mystery behind what's going on everything however that does sound very cool because it is something you know because it kind of reminds me of uh, you remember that that one I, I, I can't remember Mark Ruffalo was in it we watched it for Film Concussion a thousand thousand years Blindness um, oh god like Blindness this, uh, yeah right there I think they, they Stephen Knight did a similar show on Apple Plus or whatever that there's this virus that makes everybody go blind or whatever and like kind of yeah. exploring what that means to other people and how like when you have a virus like that that something like a word virus um, 
finding ways loopholes that the mm-hmm. the human body can find its way around it you know um i think that's well, that's pretty interesting i i almost wish they would but i don't know how they could do it i really don't uh it, it without without turning it in basically into like a uh a, like a tv miniseries and each like having each episode be its little mm-hmm. chapter and what happens that day that'd be the only way i could i could see that maybe working well it's also one of those things like i don't even know if it would work because it's such a uh, dialogue and a sure. perspective-based thing, I wouldn't even know how you would show that without having to go through the scene like three times, like showing like, okay, here's right. what the person said, here's what she heard, okay, here's how it actually happened. So unless you're like planning on going full Rashomon for like an right. entire episode, <laughs> that would be a little rough. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and then you could just kind of you know white knuckle your way through it like they do with every adaptation of 1984 you know like you mm-hmm. can't really adapt that movie because it's really all in the dude's head you know it's kind of hard to do that visually um, um so and, uh, yeah i get it i i realized something watching this too and i kind of wanted to see how you guys felt about it like this part of this thing that has always stuck out to me that i've loved is the idea like there's an old um a very old episode of Twilight Zone that has a similar concept to this where there's like a cursed word. You never hear what it is. It's something that makes people go crazy and they just start laughing. Um, so it's one of those interesting ideas where it's sort of like the, the hot lava effect where it's like a concept that you have in your head and you're like, well, what would I do if I couldn't say something to somebody? Or what would I do if I couldn't walk across the floor because it's made of lava? So it's kind of one of those fun ideas to kind of walk around with and think about um, but in the time period since this movie happened and we watched it the first time, COVID happened. The entire quarantine yep. happened. Uh, the 2020 election of Donald Trump happened. All these crazy well, 2016. nightmares. 20, yeah. 2016. Thank you, Zach. Hey, to My certain people. Time. Okay. <laughs> certain people. He, he did that 2020. Okay. Oh God. You can't um, prove he didn't. <laughs> hey, I'm going to be an oath keeper for life. Uh, no. That's um, right. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, but the thing I realized... more ballots. Oh, my God. The thing I realized, and the reason that it probably stuck with me so much, is that I think that the virus is social media. Um, I have a feeling that that's what the actual... See, and I, I think that's kind of similar, because like when you think about Grant Mazzy as being like kind of a shock jock sort of DJ radio that Mm -hmm. is sort of what we have on social media. Most of the time, there's just a lot of them. Um, It's the same kind of idea, right? People just say shit. Well, also like AM, AM radio, AM. Yeah. Or something like, yeah. I mean, previously it was things like, you know, way back when, like Rush Limbaugh that kind of turned people into, I don't know, the, the kind of, much more common version of the Republican Party that we see today. Like were that, they... there were people like that around mm-hmm. back then, but they were less frequent. And I'm sure you're correct that social media is at least one factor in the exacerbation of that kind of uh, that kind of person and of, frankly, conspiracy theories in, in general across the political spectrum. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, I'm probably oversimplifying it when I say it, but it was just, there were a couple things that just like at a surface level, I was like, I think there's some crossovers, like people repeating stuff. Uh, every time I've seen someone repeat like a Republican talking point on Twitter. Uh, and 
some of the other stuff too where it was like memes <laughs> like trying to change the meaning of things around so it no longer has the it context does... it did so like yeah, a meme it, it feels like there's some crossover there like there are certain words that uh in a political sense like almost get to the point where their definition is so loose it doesn't have a definition mm -hmm. uh socialist and canceled woke. and woke like yeah. these words no don't idea. They don't yeah, really yeah. mean any singular thing anymore. They yeah. have like a very vague non-meaning, but they get repeated a lot. Uh, or like CTR, they have bubble ones that pop up sometimes and then kind of go away. But yeah. Yeah. And then yeah. to your notion of conspiracy theory, I mean, the new popular one is that there is no war in Ukraine. It's all made up. There's no war in Ukraine. Uh, well, that's so, 1984 for you. Right, no shit, right? Yeah. Jesus. Um, that, that's like, repeating it until reality no longer makes sense. That's crazy. That, that, that is some 1984 shit, you know? Like that, yeah. That, so that's that's why I think it's interesting that they use uh, Grant Mazzy being like kind of a shock jock, not necessarily a wrestler, but more of a Howard Stern is a vibe I'm kind of getting from him. I, I, would, say more of a, I would say more of a Mad yeah, Cal Muller. Yeah, right. Okay, sure. Right. He's like not, low uh, rent. <laughs> yeah. Yes, he, he doesn't he's not espousing like repugnant uh conspiracy theories and um things like this. There's a there is a Spotify show that I was interested in listening to that's like a horror audio show starring Tracy Letts that's uh about this conservative jockey after nine eleven that uh, 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 kind of feels like it might have overlap between um, this and... Uh, it's called Quiet Part Loud. Okay, that's what it's called. But it feels like it could potentially... I haven't listened to much of it. I started the first episode. But I feel like it could have real uh, overlap between this and, and, and that because it's also about a radio broadcaster and this sort of supernatural thing starts happening and... In that case, he's a hardcore right winger, sort of Rush Limbaugh and parallel. But yeah, that's why talk radio, the 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 Eric Bogosian movie, um, kind of deals with that similar. Although he's not necessarily right wing, he goes off on a whole like how the Nazis are bad and shit like that. But he he's he's more like Bill Maher, right? You know, mm. just an asshole who just will say things just to rile people up because that's what he's paid for. Um, so that's more of what, that's kind of the vibe I'm getting more with Grant Mazzy. Not necessarily a, a guy with necessarily a, a, a yeah, the anti-establishment, he's a, wears a cowboy hat, I'm a rebel, whatever. But it's not necessarily, he's doing it for, it's, it's a commitment to the bit. And the bit is, you know, uh, if, if I'm not apathetic, I'm angry. And if I'm angry, then I get people, he even has a speech about it. If they're angry then they're going to tell their brother about it and then they're going to come in and keep listening. This is how we get viewers. That, to me, is a direct parallel to social media, YouTube blogs, all that shit. You know, like, I, I, I totally understand where they're coming from on that. And I do find it interesting that this movie was made in, 19, in 2008 um, and that the book was written in 95 because mm. uh, a big kind of thing happens in between those two days, namely 9-11, right? And that would be, that's kind of where I think you kind of get where you have this, uh, you're, you're a radio broadcaster. Your job is to communicate news and information to the masses. But in reality, you're locked in a booth. You don't know what's going on out there. You're, you're reading from a paper. The hell do you know? Um, so there is this kind of inauthentic 
reality going on here with all radio shows to begin with. So when I think about something like 9-11 and you're just in a radio booth like, oh, I'm getting this from the news. Well, you don't know what is real. You, you have no idea. You're in a booth. Um, and, and plus, nowadays, with technology, social media, camera phones, what have you, it would be a very different story. Um, this would be a very different world in Pontypool if it took place in 2020. You know, like, it would be a different world. Um, but I, I'd be curious to see that updated, though. I would be. This is one of those, this is one of those instances where I, I do think this, uh, the, the plot device of the language thing and the kind of small town feel of Pontypool, you can get away with that. You could really do this as like an audible series and even do these little kind of chapters in it. I think it would actually turn out pretty good. Um, and you could even update it if you wanted to. It would be a challenge, but that would be interesting to see somebody try to try to try to go for it. Yeah, some of the reality of the physicality of how they were set up, I think, would change dramatically. Like, I don't think sure. that you would have a. Uh, you could still have it happen in a church basement and all that, but I think they would just be doing a podcast. I think it would be like Pretty. a Joe Rogan thing. Yeah. Um. Uh. Yeah. Based on your description of the, of the book, uh, I think that like. Parts of the book could be interesting in, in a visual medium, but the way you describe the ending sounds like it cannot be like it because the book is conveyed exclusively through words and words are also the means in which the virus spread. Like uh, the visual aspect would kind of ruin that part of the book. Like it just can't be done. Yeah, that that would probably be an accurate assessment. I'm not sure quite how they would go about it now. Um like the entirety of YouTube happened between last time we watched this movie and now. So sort of like know. Grant Mazzy's sense of job is kind of like the place I work where there's like a personality that mm. becomes famous for something and then puts a thing online. We're making a podcast, which we were doing back in the day, but this is like a broadcast thing now for better or worse. <laughs> uh, sometimes Hi, everybody. Hey, hey, commenters, we're potty all woke. Potty pool, potty pool, potty pool. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's just, this is one of those ones where I always return to it and I love it, but it also has a really nice soundtrack. Like, I don't know how you guys feel about that, but like, you know how when you watch Mandy, it feels like a concept album a little bit? Like, there's some there's something about hmm. the pacing and the rhythm in the audio like since this one was originally a radio play i think they just did a lot of audio work to it to sort of up the value and the production value of it but like just listening to it it sounds really nice and it's like very comforting for some reason like even when grant mazzy's describing scary stuff there's something about stephen mccaddy's voice that is very comforting and i don't know why he but is I've very always... good in this yeah, I've always returned to it and just really enjoyed kind of all the moments. Um, also, I uh, didn't realize until this viewing that Dr. Mendez was Armenian because uh, I could kind of recognize hmm. some of the things he was yelling because I work in Glendale, which is an Armenian area. So I'm now yeah. familiar with Armenian, what he was yelling yeah. a little bit more. Um I, I've been and, to that DM. I've been to that that DMV. <laughs> I've heard some Armenian swear words. Mm -hmm, they're they're mm -hmm. very loud and prevalent. <laughs> yep. And at the DMV, you get it. Um, <laughs> um, that's. But uh, I, I honestly didn't like. I, I, I'm. Soundtracks can go one way or another, right? Like they could either kind of 
be really big and kind of draw a lot of attention to itself, especially if you've got more of an established name, like a Danny Elfman kind of type who's got kind of like a stamp, you know, like a, a motif. Mm-hmm. Um, this one does just enough. You know, it's 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 the Goldilocks zone, you know, not too hot, not too warm. It, it, it keeps it in right where it needs to be. Um, so in that way, I kind of agree with you. But I, I, I can't say that I noticed it. It didn't jump out at me, but I think that's good um, mm. because my sole focus is McCat is Mazzy and his voice, and even the whole Sydney Breyer is alive, and they just loop that over and over and over again. The way his cadence of the way he does his voice is like smooth but gruff. I don't know, man. It's it's mm-hmm. that it he, that's a that's a fucking radio voice, and that rules. Like, and that I I really. He really knocked it out of the park. And and you could, to kind of see the panic on his face while he's talking to Cam Loney, while still trying to, like, kind of be calm and sounding calm, um, mm-hmm. pretty good. Pretty good. Yeah. I, I guess, uh, to your thing, I should have said sound design. Um, I think the oh, sound design sure. on this okay. is really I was about to say, out. I thought you were talking about the soundtrack. Yeah. I'm like, I'm not yeah, going to lie, I barely noticed it. <laughs> I don't know if I've asked you this before. I, I'm sure I have, but... Where the fuck did you see this movie? Um, like, <laughs> tell me that journey because, like I said, I don't think I could go a year without you bringing this movie up. So I gotta ask, yeah. where did you stumble upon this movie? Because this is a, I mean, it's barely a cult classic, you know. Like, it's it's I I, I don't outside of the group of people here, I, I don't I mean, know too many people who know this movie. I'll I'll say that um, prior to Chris choosing this for the film concussion last time. I had seen this movie already. Like, okay. so I don't remember where I discovered it, but it was not okay. through Chris. It was through some other means. Okay. Yeah. Um, I think uh, for me, it was that I heard about it all the way back in the day on a film site called twitchfilm.net. Uh, this was like when the film came out and they were just saying it was a good film, but they did coverage of the Toronto International Film Festival, which is actually very, very close to where... Um, uh, Tony Burgess and all these Ponty. people who'd made the movie right. are. Um, so right. Well, Pontypool uh, is like a suburb of Toronto, isn't it? I believe so. Like it kind of turns into. Is it a real place? Is Pontypool a real up. place? Yes, yeah. it's a okay. real place. Okay, it is. Uh, all of his books, I think, are named after actual places. Like these, also got Caesarea, um, which is another location up there, or Budley. Uh Anyway, uh, I found out about this movie uh, because of word of mouth, and then it turned into a thing where I had to hunt it down because I kept seeing like praise of it, but you couldn't find it anywhere. And I remember this from the last time we you watched it was on streaming. You couldn't rent it. Yeah, like I couldn't find it streaming, so I had to find my copy to do a re- viewing of it. Um, if you get the free week of AMC Plus. You could watch it. Oh, <laughs> but that's what I, did. I will. I, I'll tell you one thing that's been funny though. Like in LA, this one comes up in random places. Um, like my boss, Aaron Hansen. Like I've never had anyone else have exactly the same response that I do when someone brings up Pontypool. Like where there's like a passion. Like oh, it's good. You should go watch it. It's good. But like. Aaron Hansen, like completely not listening to me, not having heard me talk about it, just started talking about Pontypool one day. And I was like, am I having a stroke? Why are you talking about this movie? Um, am I infected with the word virus? I just hear your Pontypool. <laughs> uh, 
but yeah, it's one of those things. Like I used to have to hunt really hard. We've talked about this a couple times. Like you got to hunt for the good ones. Um, yep. And it was in a time before streaming. So it was like, you know, if you hear a movie's good, you had to go find it because it would probably never come to Blockbuster. And uh, a bunch of the other ones from the time period that I discovered also didn't uh, age as well as this one did. There were some of them where I was like, oh, this is cool. And then I watched it again. And I was like, oh, God, this is unpleasant. Um, like a lot of the extreme, extreme French horror. Not that fun to watch now. Oh, yeah. I, I think that that was uh, the curse of the late aughts or to like early 2010s. Like there was a period where it was all about extremity of gore and martyrs came out mm. and things like, uh, you know, it's the same time Saw was big, which is, yeah. you know, was like still had its gruesomeness. But like the indie ones were even more like extreme and gruesome almost for the sake of it a lot of the time in my opinion yeah. and i think it's in my opinion the weakest period of horror film maybe in the history of the genre i, <laughs> I really agree. dislike it uh, i think i think that was a bad time until the, around the time that babadook came out and they started making like much more high quality horror films again when, when a24 came around basically where yeah. it was like kind it's of okay, yeah it's, it's okay to be an artsy weirdo who there was there was some stuff, stuff before like babadook and it follows and there's a couple oh, others yeah. that were like predecessors to that that kind of start kicked off the trend but yeah yeah i would agree with that though like i i couldn't stand the aughts for horror like there i i have since worked with one of the guys who did the saw stuff and I don't know if they even like the movies from that period of time as much because I hmm. think like they didn't really like gore. Uh, I, I got to briefly work with Darren Boozman, which was a lot of fun. Uh, but it was the thing where I cut my hand open and he couldn't handle the gore. And then we had a chit chat about gore. And he was like, you know, since having a kid, I don't really like gore that much because you have your kid get hit once or hurt once. And then it's a thing. And I have a feeling that might have just been the thing going on at the time is that a lot of people like who were going to the movies who were our age mm -hmm. didn't have kids yet. Yeah. Now you got kids, right. and it's like, oh, God, that's terrible. The other thing that was bad at that time was the uh, the end of the Asian cycle of horror, where it was like the ring had come out. Like, kind of two big ones came out, and then there was just like a decade of just everything from Japan that was a horror film of some girl with dark, long hair and water was coming out in the U.S. for no apparent reason or remakes <laughs> yeah, of yeah. that stuff. And it was weird. Remake And remakes of 80s stuff was also big in that time period. Yeah. 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 So that's why it is. Uh, this movie, for all that being said, uh, holds up pretty well. Um, in in all actuality, this movie is just a fucking B movie. You know, like it's a it's a B yeah. zombie movie. Um, you know, and without it being because even like even when you watch like The Walking Dead, like that that gore really draws attention to itself. I mean, like really a lot. Um, and it, I, it's tamed down a little bit for TV, but it's still pretty gross and dead zombie shit you don't get any of that with this like even even with like the 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 big thing now with the last of us there's still like this kind of fungal kind of macabre shit going on so mm -hmm. they're not really human human the the creepy part about the pontypool zombies is they are normal for the most part they yeah. just are almost ravenous but for the most part they're pretty normal um yeah. so it it kind of like it's easier to kill your best friend when he's a zombie and he looks like a zombie, but it's harder to do it when your best friend is just speaking, help, 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 and just can't stop repeating it. A little bit different. So that is extremely effective. And again, not drawing a lot of attention to it. Like, it really keeps it 
at arm's length. I think they only had one really big hit in the movie. Uh, I think it was when Laurel Ann Drummond um, passes away. I guess she... Pretty uh, much. Spoiler. She she explodes, kind of. She, like, explodes with a... uh, She uh, has an explosion of vomit and blood that splatters everywhere. And it's really big, really intense. Um... Uh, I saw they had a gif of that, so it's actually just a puppet that's being shook like this, which is really funny when you look at it out of context, because it's a very short shot, but it's just like a little muppet that's just like... B-movie anyway. shit. That's the, yeah, yeah. I love that stuff. That 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 uh, I the the schlockier the better. You mm-hmm. know, like I I'm I'm a fan. Um, so yeah, I mean, like that's why I I it, it is considering its contemporaries. This movie isn't trying to make a big splash. Um, it's quite kind of doing the opposite, really. Like it's it. You don't know what's happening until it's almost too late. Um, and so that's kind of pretty groovy and. Uh, as you said, economical. This movie is not long. Like you, this is a pretty brief movie. Um, without feeling like I got trimmed around the edges, you know, where I feel like they they didn't just like cut the fat. There was no cut. There was no fat to cut. You know, they're they're just in there. Um, but as I said, you know, when you're in that position, you do end up your 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 <laughs> the logical conclusion of this setup is one of two outcomes: one, they escape, or two, they don't. Uh, and you don't get that answer. I've got a pretty good idea of what happened, though. <laughs> got a pretty good guess. Um, <laughs> um, great movie, Borif. You know, I, it's a good movie. You know, like I know this is your kind of like secret handshake to get in the Borif Friendship Club. Um, so I get it because it's a lot of fun and it doesn't require a whole lot. You know, it does a lot with the very little. And those are always my kind of favorite movies. It's fun to see the, the, the zombie genre, so to speak, kind of played with in this way, um, it, using a very, you know, like I said, kind of Twilight Zone, Doctor Who device of a word virus. Um, and that's the one magic thing that happens, and that's it. That, there's no other magic other than that. Um, very Rod Sterling point of view, um, which is effective and good. I think that it's obviously very effective as a radio play because it basically is a radio play. Um, it's sort of what kind of keeps the visuals toned down because you don't really, that's not the purpose of it, but the one or two, the four or five striking moments visually that they do utilize, uh, is mainly, I think used to get into the character of Mazzy mainly. Um, so, they use that very effectively, and that's what draws you in. Um, without you particularly thinking that you like Mazzy, or you're, you know, you're, you're kind of just, you're along with him because he doesn't know what's going on either. So you're kind of figuring it out along the way. And that's where I, I, it's, it's a horror movie in that, you know, you get, you know, word zombies or whatever, but it's not, not what you would, if I were to tell somebody that this is a good horror movie, I think they'd probably say, well, I mean, it wasn't that scary. Um, and I'm like, well, yeah, it's, it's, but it's, it's dreadful. And it's paranoia and it invokes all of those things that can be very scary. And considering this movie came out in 2008, uh, holds up pretty good. Uh, and I think that, you know, considering the source material kind of expands the universe a little bit, not sure if it would work as a movie, but boy, I mean, as a podcast or as a radio series on audible or Spotify or something, I think it'd be fantastic. Um, I think it'd be really, really good. 
Um, you could you could have a lot of fun with that and keep going even and just stay within the confines of Pontypool. Um, I think that that's a fantastic idea. Somebody should do that. Somebody with money and, and brains do that. That's my <laughs> and then you know cut me in, wet me, let me wet my beak a little bit. Uh, so that's my final thoughts. Fine movie, uh, good movie, and yeah, I I I always enjoy watching it because again, you're you're not it's not an overcommitment, but and it will be something different that you probably haven't seen. This is something different than other zombie movies, period. Yeah, uh, I'll jump in next. Uh, uh, so, yeah, like I said, uh, f- still now, but, um, you know, starting in my early teens, I was like very into the horror genre and I sought out interesting horror movies. And I'm more likely to let them slip through the collapse cracks a little now. But uh, during the time this came out, like I was on my, I was on the ball. I heard about it. I don't remember where. And I watched it and I uh, enjoyed it because like I said, I was not a big fan of that era of horror. I watched two or three saws and I was like, I think I'm done with that. Mm. I still have never watched one again. Um, same with like the paranormal activities. That was the other thing. There was a lot of those like uh, mm. knockoff oh, yeah, the, footage. Movies. Yeah, right. Um, That's still but, kind uh, of around, but not as much. Yeah, a little <laughs> bit. Um, but uh, I think that, yeah, this is a really interesting one that relies so heavily on the writing and the acting and like, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't go in for like the big gore special effects or, or, or action ish sequences, like big, grandiose horror sequences that a lot of them do i think it's an interesting and and you know you can tell that it was a budget but it doesn't feel it feels like it's realized even though you know there was a budget and it's hard when movies do that like for one the original like kind of zombie movie night of the living dead is an example of doing that well and then there's movies that do like this it's like a very difficult trick is to do tell don't show well um, and you know, like you've got one could argue like something like, uh, speaking of found footage, the Blair Witch Project might do that really well, or the ability to build atmosphere with like simple things, uh, like, you know, Skinnamarink just came out and a lot, and the reason that people like that movie, if they like it, your mileage may vary on it, um, <laughs> is because like it was able to effectively build atmosphere with simple tools. Um, but uh, I think that this movie, while technically it probably had a bigger bigger budget than any of the three movies I talked about, even adjusted for inflation, uh, still manages to do, maybe not Night of the Living Dead, but definitely the other two, still manages to do, um, manages to do all that really well. And I think that's why it holds up, because those tricks, if you pull those tricks off, you know, they don't age like CG ages or the kind of big like balls to the wall trends kind of age. Uh, They just are permanently uh, uh, solid. Um, I liked this movie when I first saw it. I liked when we watched it for the film concussion. I still like it now. Uh, I don't think I, I don't think it's as big for me as it is for Chris, but Hey, Mm. that's, you know, how it goes. Um, Right. Yeah, it's a good one for sure. It's it's definitely underrated. I think like, as far as like a horror movie, it's definitely underrated for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, you guys kind of covered it. I can keep going on about how I fusely love this movie. Um, uh, one of the things I've always So let's found... go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well... <laughs> um, I've always liked that this film is a tight, uh, quick watch, 
Um, sometimes the time, the sense of time feels a little strange because you're not sure how long they've actually been in this booth. How long this guy's radio show would realistically last? Like when other people would show up, right. what the case would be. But all that stuff aside, it has really good uh, charisma. And I mean that both the actors and how the film handles itself. It's very self-assured. Um, when it does do something weird, it knows it's doing something weird and it draws attention to it in a way that doesn't feel uh, like it's sticking out like a sore thumb. Uh, it also um, is one of these things where I love the idea that it's an adaptation of this really weird book. Because when I read the book, it doesn't read like something I would ever expect to see as a movie. And somehow these crazy, weird Canadians did this. Um, we got this version of it. The BBC said no to doing the big, the big budget version of this because it was so weird and so wild. But, you know, there are many parents... Uh, that sort of usher a film into becoming what it is. And I think that this is a case of that where they had limitations. They also had a lot of talent and they had a good idea and they had really phenomenal actors. So I always like this one. It always feels like a one man play or a one man or not a one man play. It feels like a one room stage play. They could have done it as a one man play. Uh, I always am going to suggest mm. this to people. I don't know if it's just that it got stuck in my head like the word virus, but I just always suggest this one to people. And uh, <laughs> as a Ponty button on it, affected you. It does change Ponty everything. Pole has affected me. <laughs> and I wanted to throw in one thing that's funny that I never realized until doing the interview with uh, Tony Burgess, which is that Stephen McCaddy and Lisa Hewell are married in real life. The, the main two actors are actually married. I had no idea. And it was fun to watch it again with that in the back of my head knowing that the the familiarity they have interacting with each other uh would make sense because they're married but it also makes sense as far as like being in a workplace and trying to be familiar with people and i've had to interact with sometimes very egotistical hosts uh in hollywood i won't hear of it exactly it's one of those <laughs> things where you just got to come in and kind of be plain spoken with certain people uh because if you're polite and endearing it will probably end up triggering the wrong response so i totally get uh how sydney Breyer was having to approach this problem of having a difficult host and how you got to talk them through it uh a lot of this movie, like I said, has grown on me more as time has gone on and I have gotten older and I've realized that the things that I thought were just funny little details in the movie are pretty close to how it professionally happens when you're actually dealing with people, including the sheer volume of drinking on the job. Anyway, <laughs> so that's my final thought on it. And I believe it's convenient that, that McCaddy and Hewell were married, too, because you've got that kind of natural shorthand you know, when you're playing such a contentious role with each other. And then eventually you kind of have to bond and survive together. So I kind of, they, they, you don't have to work through a lot. You don't need a lot of rehearsal to kind of get that vibe. So like, I, I, it's kind of smart, actually. It's economical, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, that was Pontypool and that was fun. Uh, so, uh, some points were given out because I gave a point to Borif, uh, for saying that the movie itself was infected. Uh, and I totally agree with that. So that puts Borif at 13 points for final voting. I have 11 points and Zach Powers, you have 11 points. Uh, but Chris, you've got a bonus point. I've got one bonus point and Zach, you've got two bonus points. So mm, okay. that brings us to the conclusion of Zach's theme of movie adaptations that I have read that, and now it's on to me. So I kind of struggled with this because um, I, I recently read, um, 
I've been going through the the whole Dune canon. Um, so I and and mainly I just want an excuse to watch that movie and talk about it. But then I thought, well, it's only half the book, so I don't, I don't think that's fair. You know, it doesn't really not, doesn't really count. Uh, so I, I decided to not do that. Um, so I decided to do something in the spirit of kind of revisiting stuff from the film concussion days. I'm not picking a movie from the film concussion days, but there was an episode where uh, we picked two movies that were from the same author. And I know all of us have seen this movie before, but I've read this book many times. I've read the audio play. I've seen the, 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 the British series. I'm going to choose 2011 Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Uh, with Gary Oldman and um, tons of people. Tom Hardy, Benedict Cumberbatch, tons of people. <laughs> Colin Firth, cast of thousands. Got, he's got um, all them I know, English, I'm pretty English sure all dudes. of us have seen it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I never I, got I, around. I, I meant to see it for a long time, and I never got around to it. It's oh, okay, those. great. Um, yeah. Great. Um, well, this is... Uh, the. It, it's a very... The adaptation I found to be very faithful, considering how thick that book is and the changes that they do make not just for plot purposes but also certain character traits are very different than from the book and I'll get into it um, and plus it's just been a minute since I've seen that movie and they are planning on doing the sequel um, so I'm very excited about that um, so yeah tune in next time when we'll be watching Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy I am a huge John le Carre fan uh, we did do a John le Carre episode in the film concussion days I believe we did a uh, the Spy Who Came Up From The Cold, the Richard Burton movie, and uh, The Constant Gardener. But we've never done Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy uh, because it wasn't out yet. Um, so <laughs> this is kind of, uh, this is this is us uh, uh, revisiting and going back and, and making sure we're completest about this. Uh, All right. So yeah, that's uh, I Am Choosing Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. That will be uh, the final movie of movie adaptation. So then we will vote next episode and we will find a brand new theme. Um, so, uh, with that in mind, uh, this has been a lot of fun. Please, uh, watch your language. Uh, and yeah, that's all I can say. So with that in mind, I have been Russell Carlson and I have been joined by Chris Boroff. It's not the end of the world. It's just the end of the day. <laughs> Great. And now I've also been joined by Zach Powers. <laughs> <laughs> Zach's playing it safe. <laughs> Alrighty. Well, thanks for joining the movie trap. Find us everywhere on, on the podcast links, on YouTube, comment. We're nice people. We don't mind if you yell at us. We're good with it. Um, so with that in mind, uh, as we always say here on the film, on, on the film concussion, Jesus, as we always say here on the movie trap, uh, Diane Ladd is too young to play Chevy Chase's mom. I wish I had written down, that's the movie trap promise, but I'm just going to have to oh, say Oh, man. <laughs> I know it. But see, that's the word that's infected. Now we've done it. Now it's out in the world. Promise. And, yeah. You know, the, the promise. whole world. Uh, promise, 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 promise. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We'll see you guys. Let's get out of here. Where are we going? I can't play by the establishment rules any longer. My patience is worn thin. We're breaking the limits, stealing cars. Leaving the world behind to figure out what they believe is black and white. But what about? What about? What about what about? It's not a good anti-establishment way to begin a question. My name. My name, too. Johnny Deadeyes. Hmm. Lisa the Killer. Where are we going, Johnny? To a new place that isn't even there yet. And then? Then we steal the loot and knock boots in the free world, baby. 
Okay, okay, baby.